Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Ayana Howard. Ayana is chair of the School of Interactive Computing in the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. Ayana, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. I, I appreciate the invite. I think we're going to have a beautiful conversation. Uh, I am really looking forward to it. And why don't we get it kicked off by having you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, how you got involved and interested in artificial intelligence? Um, so I was a, I would say, an old, early adopter of AI. Um, before <laughs> what does it was that cool. mean? <laughs> well, because now it's cool. Like, everyone's like, oh, I do AI, I'm doing machine learning. It's like, no, no, no. My rusty thesis where we had to, like, draw stuff and try to figure out how to put it had a neural network in it. You know, oh, so nice. it's like, I've been doing this since 1990, oh, 1994. I think I coded up my first neural network. Oh, wow. Uh, so that, that's what I'm saying. So I'm old school and it, and it wasn't a thing. It was just a way to make uh, my robots more intelligent. Uh, and so I focus, um, I, my background, I consider myself a, a, a robotics person. Um, and so in robotics and AI and um, embodied AI is, is really what I do. And started in this uh, very, very early on. Um, I knew I wanted to do robotics since like middle school. Uh, and of course, it was a different robotics then. It was basically remote control cars that you could figure out how to program. Um, but then that evolved. And when I was working on my PhD thesis, um, I was also working at JPL, NASA's JPL. And I was coding up, um, trying to figure out how do I make rovers more intelligent? So that was the objective. And I thought that the best way to do it was try to figure out how people think and behave and process and try to encapsulate that and put it into my robot brain. Um, and so those, that's why I was doing AI. It wasn't necessarily um, AI-ish. It was um, these algorithms allowed me to take human data, human expertise, and put it into a form that my robots could understand. Um, so, Yeah. Like I always tell my students, I'm cool now, right? <laughs> uh, with enough time, hopefully we'll all be cool. That is true. That is true. <laughs> nice. Um, so you um, you mentioned kind of capturing human experience and kind of using, you know, encoding that in your robots. Uh, you also mentioned neural nets. Like when I think of uh, the way we captured human experience and put them into systems at that time, a lot of it was like expert systems and kind of the previous, you know, that origin, that, uh, wave of, of AI from like the eighties. Um, is that the kind of thing you were doing or were you, were you doing the neural net stuff in that context as well? I was doing, so my, my thesis, the, what my approach was, um, I had to, figure out how do I get a robot um, manipulator, so robot hands and arms, to grab objects that deform. So the thing was is we wanted to bring robots into the hospital and we wanted them to do things like pick up uh, pillows and sheets and things like that. And these objects weren't, they weren't fixed, right? They, it put, you apply a force and they change the shape. 
Um, and there was really no way of mat- mathematically modeling that. And so my thing was, let's learn. And so what I did is early, early human demonstration is I had sensors on these manipulators and I'd have people grab objects with them. And I would collect that data and I'd look and see, you know, how much mm. force did they have applied? And then I would model the object deformation, but the input was about the human. Okay, this is how much, and lift it up. Oh, it fell. Okay, this is how much they applied. And it, and it okay. was solved. So that's how I got the data. And that data was then used to train a neural network so that the robot then could visually see this object. It would map that information um, in terms of a model that I created. Um, And then as it would grab, it would visually match that deformation to the model it had stored in the neural network and say, okay, this is the force I think I should have given the shape of the object that I learned before with previous knowledge. Oh, interesting. And how much data did you did you have to collect? Do you remember? Yeah, so this wasn't like the deep learning stuff. This was, I mean, I literally had 10 objects. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was, this was, this was a big thing. The fact that I could even do 10 objects was like amazing. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it, it's not the, uh, the neural networks of today. Right. Um, right. And so yeah, limited data set. I mean, even then though, it, the number of observations you had to do was a lot considering it was only 10 objects. I remember we would be in the lab and I'd be like, okay, let's run through another, let's lift it up. Times, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, uh, that felt like a lot of data then. I mean, it, it wasn't, but at the time it right. was a lot of data. Right, right, right. Uh, if we only knew back then. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so fast forward, uh, fast forward some years, what are you working on nowadays? Um, so now I'm working on two, and I would call them two buckets uh, that are really interesting to me. So one is looking at uh, pediatric robotics. How do you create robot coaches, therapists that can work with children with special needs in the home to do exercise. Um, And why it really interests me is because we have to do things like, um, how does a robot adapt to different kids? So every child's unique. How does you bring a robot in and it uniquely identifies uh, the needs of that child in in fairly real time? You put emotions on a robot and emotions is like, why do you need that? Well, emotions help with the bonding. So a child, you want them to do something that's hard. So how do you get them to do something they may not want to do? Emotions allows the child to connect with the robot. So then the robot says it and the child just wants to please the robot because this is this is its friend. This is his or her friend. Um, so that's really interesting because I get to play with all of these things in, in the kind of the science space and the psychology space to get mm. the robots to um, have this bond and guide. And then we, of course, use the classical things like, you know, computer vision to extract what the child is doing in terms of their body movements and eye gaze and facial expressions to see, are we getting the right emotional response from the child? So some of the classical things are incorporated in that. So that's, I would say, half of my life. Um, and then the other is this work I'm looking at and, and involved in with respect to trust in robots, or trust in embodied agents, trust in AI. Um, we had some interesting experiments where we have evidence that people overtrust robots. And really? Yeah. Um, it, it was a scenario, and it's, it's like I talk about it all the time, and it's, it's one of these scenarios where your own hypotheses were wrong. 
And you're like, oh my gosh, my huh. hypothesis was wrong. This is interesting. So this was research that you, you and your group did? Yes. Yeah, so this is research I did with, um, I had a colleague at the time who was at GTRI, which is um, our research arm, and then my students. And um, where it started off, of course, was in, with robots, you start off in simulation because it's really hard to deploy real robots. Um, so you always start off in simulation. And we were doing an emergency evacuation. So imagine you're in a building and the alarm goes off and you need to evacuate. So as you're evacuating, imagine that a robot comes and you know, shows you the directions of how to get out because it's you know, chaos and all these things. Uh, and so we were, that was a scenario. And what we wanted to do was understand if a robot makes mistakes, what would the person do? Would they disregard? So we weren't even looking mm. at trust. We were looking at, you know, introducing mistakes and how um, optimal does a robot have to be for people to follow? So that was that was the okay. real focus. That's how it started. Um, and what we found out was that very early on, the robots would make mistakes and the people would still follow guidance of the robot. So this is kind of, this was interesting. We, Can we you give like, an example of the kind of mistake that, the yes. robot would make and that would be followed? So I'm in a, again, I'm, this is, we started in simulation. So I'm in a simulated building, you know, we have the fire, like a virtual reality game, a robot appears, you know, follow me and you follow. And then the robot goes and bumps into a wall and then pokes up and bumps into the wall again and then bumps into the wall again. Right. So, and you have a choice. So the instructions are you can find your own exit or you can stay with the robot. Huh. Um, and so you would think, oh, the person would like, okay, the robot's broken. Let me go find the exit. <laughs> right, right. You, wouldn't have ex you would not expect the person to just stay there and just watch the robot, fascinated by this robot that was clearly not doing something that it was supposed to be. Right. And it, again, it was more accidents. Our, our original objective was not this trust objective. Uh, so we started to push that. Like, okay, there's something strange about this. We're not quite sure. You know, what happens if we expose you to a broken robot or a robot that has mistakes before you go into the building? And then do you? And so we just kept pushing and kept pushing it. Um, and our final experiment, which was in we got to hardware through this transition from simulation to hardware, um, the guidance and our um, our experiment that just baffled us. Um, was we had a abandoned building that was off lab. This was um, one of these these um, participants that we we had. You know, fire marshal was involved and things like that. Uh, we had the robot guide the person through the building to an office room. Um, and in the office, they had to close the door. And you know, there was an article about some survey robot navigation and fill it out. So we tried to. Uh, prompt the user to think that this was the experiment, right? This survey and, and things like that. And while the person was in the room, we filled the building up with smoke. So smoke to simulate a fire alarm, and then we set off the fire alarm. Um, and so what happens is the door was closed. So fire alarm goes off like typical human behavior. You get up and you walk to the door, to, you know, evacuate. But when you open the door, guess what you see? You see smoke and you see fire alarms and you see oh, these wow. yeah. lights, right? Um, and so you, 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 okay, what are you supposed to do? You, you're definitely going to find an exit. I'm going to find an exit. What we did is we introduced the robot and intentionally the robot was guiding you to an exit where you did not come in. 
So we intentionally did that. So you come from a different entrance, for example, entrance exit, and we guide you to a different one. And we wanted to see, you know, what would you do? Now it's like, it's a for real thing. It's not simulation. It's, right, it's for right. real. What would you do? Um, people follow the guidance of the robot. Meaning through the, the banging into the wall thing? Did you, did you incorporate that? Yeah, so we incorporated um, robots that would turn in place. They wouldn't do anything. We incorporated robots that would guide you into dark rooms, like there was no lights with furniture blocking, and you would see people moving the furniture to go into these dark rooms. Hmm. Um, we introduced mistakes even when they entered the building. Like when you came in, let's have the robot break down and do things like, you know, circle mm-hmm. place up mm-hmm. into the walls. And then later bring that same robot and see, you know, now you have this notion this robot doesn't work, you know, here's the robot again. What are you going to do? Wow. And time and time and time again, um, it broke our hypothesis. Our hypothesis would be at some point, um, trust would be broken. Right, right. Um, and it was not, which, which actually surprised us. Um, and if you look at the data, um, there were some, some suggestions of why, and we're teasing that out. So some suggestions were, well, it's a robot. It can fix itself, Right. Like, yeah, I knew it was broken before, but it's a robot. It's, it's a program, right? So, it, of course, it was fixed. Or the robot had more information than I probably did. So it kind of knew better. Um, so things like this where people were following this guidance and they were um, explaining why they should, like after the fact, explaining why it was perfectly logical for them to do that. Um, and then I look at things like, you know, Tesla and autonomous vehicles and crashes and people like oh how did you run into and i'm like no it now makes perfect sense Mm, interesting so did you make any attempts to baseline uh this against um human human behavior meaning you know you've got uh a human that's playing the role of the robot in these scenarios and that is um, you know, either making mistakes or clearly lost or something like that and try to determine whether the right. results Follow you saw were just, you know, based on kind of authority figures and us, you know, blindly following authority figures, whether or not we deem them competent objectively or, you know, is this specific think, to robots? No, we think it's it's the fact that we as humans place these robots in a higher state. That's that's what we think it is, because we did. So the human human in simulation, not in the real world. Um, and and we think that that is um, this aspect of like the robot knows better. The robot is an expert in this in this scenario. And so um, what did you see when you did human human in simulation? Oh, it was it was the same. It was. Well, so interesting enough, we did. Again, the human human is teleoperate. So it's it's a there's a human controller kind of thing. Um, we also did static signs, like trying to compare robots and signs. So it was more of a comparison than anything else. Um, and we found in like the human aspect, um, peer pressure was more effective. So if you had more than, so if you had an influencer that was very dominant, they usually could influence the person. Um, if not, you had to have like additional people to influence the person. And so, like, if one person is like, I think it's over there, right, versus, no, it's over there. Right. Um, and again, that's exuding, I guess, authority. 
Um, and so there, I think it's about three, like you need three people to say I'm uncertain, but I think we, it's over there for it to be fact uh, in that regard. Um, so we, we, we do think it's this, and, and I won't say necessarily authority, but this fact of this is the expert in this situation. Um, and yet the, this is a totally human situation. And, and that's really what um, is, is a little bit disconcerting. So we did another study also in this trust where we, in the therapy related to therapy, where we looked at um, comparison between a robot therapist and a human therapist and looked at aspects of trust. Um, and so would you follow the guidance? And there we didn't make, we didn't do the mistakes. We just wanted to get a baseline of this, which you're talking about authority, but basically feelings of, you know, this trust and following. And interesting enough, in that scenario, for the robot, they literally would self, you know, in terms of our survey results, they, they claimed that they trusted the robot. In the human scenario, they said trust has nothing to do with it. It was the same task. I mean, literally, we had the robot and the human do exactly the same behaviors because we didn't want to put in any nuances like, oh, the human smiled instead of, you know, at instance one versus instance two. So we basically scripted the behavior of the robot and the therapist exactly the same. And what was the the task here? It was a therapy task. So they basically had to follow the guidance of moving their arms in a certain configuration. Okay. Um, so very, very, not a, not a very strenuous task, just very simple exercise. So task. physical therapy, physical uh, therapy, sorry. right. Physical okay. therapy. And so the humans, uh, when they were being guided by another human, it was, you know, just this thing that they, you know, did, you know, whereas when they were, there was a robot involved, it kind of evoked this, you know, question of whether there was trust involved in the relationship. Yes. Is that the, the idea? Correct. 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 Hmm. Um, they weren't the same, even though the outcomes, because we measure the outcomes, like what did you actually do? And the, the people, participants, followed the exact same like trajectory and rules. And there was very little variation in terms of even, you know, how well they did the task. Uh, but yet their perception of the agent differed. Um, and even that we even we even modeled the exact same speech. Like, here is what you say, like exactly the same right, with the right. robot and the human scripted. And yet there was a difference when it was the person. Now, that's interesting, but I'm not sure what exactly it tells you. What what conclusions did you draw from that? Um, so the conclusions we drew is that um, because there's this aspect of um, it, it goes with bonding, but this aspect of mm. trust. Mm hmm. What that means is I think that when you have these scenarios with these humans and, and these robots, that if a robot says something or does something or tells you some information, you have this assumption that um, the robot must be correct because I trust the robot is going to do the right thing. I trust the programmers that are programming the robot to do the right thing. Um, whereas with a human, it's just a... And, and humans question other humans all the time, right? And I think it's because as soon as a human does something wrong, you probably be like, oh, you're wrong. I'm not going to trust you. Right, right. But I think because based on our previous work, if a robot does something wrong, because you started off with this condition of trust, it, it doesn't, doesn't break. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned Tesla in passing, and 
you know, in this context, I can't help to think about how, you know, a lot of us are notorious backseat drivers. Like we wouldn't get in a car and, and just like totally cede control over to someone else uh, without, you know, be constantly thinking about what they should be doing better. But right. yet so many of us would sit in a, a Tesla that tells us, you know, pay attention, keep your hands on the wheel and so totally like, oh, not. No. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, there was a recent accident uh, where uh a Tesla like slammed into a fire truck and it was, yeah, I think it was at 65 right. miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I didn't see in the article whether the driver, you know, was claimed to, you know, being just, you know, was not distracted or, you know, was like deeply engaged in something else or, you know, in this context, you almost wonder if, you know, someone's thinking, oh, the car's going to handle it or something. I don't know. Um, right, it'll do a last minute maneuver. Right. Right. Is autonomous vehicles an area that you're that you're getting involved in and applying some of this? We um... are, we are. Uh, we we've done our our first study um, where we are looking at again. You always have to have a baseline. So we're at the baseline. What is your um, if you know that there's another driver on the road that's human, and that human makes a mistake. So what is the baseline? No mistake, and then the human makes a mistake. What is your um, what is your driving behavior? Does it change? Do you positively? Mm. And mm-hmm. then do the same thing with a self-driving car to see what happens. So that's our baseline. And we, we just collected our, our, I can't tell you the, the secret sauce yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, overtrust is there. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so we're going to push that. And, and ultimately, it's like, well, why are you doing so? Yeah, you prove that it's overtrust. Ultimately, what um, I want to do with this research and with my lab is then come up with methods to mitigate it. Uh, because the fact is, is that we are going to be dependent on these AI systems, right? We're going to be relying on them and we're going to trust them to do what they're supposed to do. And I think as roboticists, we also need to ensure that if there's a scenario where we're uncertain, for example, you know, I can look at the data and be like, oh yeah, we're 85%. Oh, that's good enough. Give the answer, right? I, I know this. I know how accurate my stuff is or how certain or, you know, oh, this data set I really haven't seen, but it's close enough. And I come up with a metric of what's close enough. Um, I think that information would be valuable if I'm in a self-driving car, for example, and I see a scenario, um, I should be able to give feedback like um, there's something in front of me. I don't know what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and let the driver know. So then the driver could be like, oh, well, let me pay attention. OK, because there's something's wrong. You're giving me information that's not that's a little bit different. Um, what are those things that we can do as roboticists to basically, I would say, you know, kind of jumpstart a person to think a, a little bit about it? And I, I think it's our responsibility to do that, but then also ensure that the humans also still follow the directions when they want to. I don't want, you know, uh, my, like with emergency evacuation, I don't want the robot to come. You're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to follow you. And it's like, no, no, no. Now we want you to, please. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is not the time to say no. Uh, it's interesting in that it, it's almost like the, there's this compounding effect where, you know, you've got this over-trust issue, but the things that we're over-trusting are you know, increasingly probabilistic where we've traditionally associated computers with, you know, deterministic correctness, right? 
Right. Um, right. And, you know, just the way you're, you know, describing, I'm, I'm kind of thinking through like all different kinds of ways that one might convey, you know, this, you know, you know, probabilistic notions via, you know, robots and systems like this, like what, you know, what's the confused face on your Tesla or some other robot or. <laughs> right. What does that look like? Right. Um, and how, how far have you gotten with that? Have you, have you, um, come up with directions on in that, uh, or have you come up with uh, any initial research into, you know, directions on conveying these kinds of uh, prob- probabilistic outcomes or? We have, but it's not. And, and so with anything, it's not statistically significant, um, which basically means we have more work. To do. Um, so one, we found that the way that you provide information, there's a timing constraint to it um, when you provide that information. Um, it's, it's important because we filter. So depending on the timing, you'll filter out the information, um, figure out what that timing is. We still, you know, we've, and again, we're at the stage of, okay, here's the event, you know, what happens if we provide the information right before, like at the point where they can still make a decision, but maybe it's a split second type of decision. What happens? Okay. What happens if we put it so that they have to think about it? And so we're, we're playing with that to see maybe because I can give you the information, but I have to also give you the um, urgency to do something and also make sure that you can do something. Um, so if you think about the Tesla, maybe it's it's a blocky, you know, way up ahead, but I'm only going one mile per hour. Right. You probably don't need to tell my user I'm confused. Right. It may not make sense. Um, but maybe if I'm, I, again, I'm hazy, I don't know what's going on and I have my map and I know that, you know, one mile ahead is a really bad intersection because I've crowdsourced this data and everyone says it's a really bad intersection and my centers are, my sensors are uncertain at this point. Okay. I think the timing is about right, you know, at this point. Um, and so it's not like a magic bullet that says, this is it. I think it's scenario dependent. I think it's um, timing is really, really important. And then, of course, how you provide that information. Um, you can't say I'm 80% accurate actually means, and we've done some studies on, uh, again, related to the medical, like when doctors and clinicians get information, saying something like 80% uh, is not as effective as just saying um, I'm wrong, right? Uh, there's even ways of providing that data so that user will understand what that means. Do you think the creators of these kinds of systems will be, you know, open to conveying this uh, uncertainty? Like, you know, is there a, is there a sense where, you know, you convey an uncertainty and the user might think that the system is broken as opposed to understanding that it's inherently probabilistic and, and thus the, the uh, you know, the system makers won't want to be able to convey um, uncertainty. Have you explored that at all? Yeah, well, so what I'm very positive about, though, is that there's this whole push now on um, transparency and AI algorithms. 
Um, and AI and robotics are so tightly linked that it basically affects us as roboticists as well. Um, and this aspect of, you know, especially with respect to the deep learning algorithms, you know, this concept of you have a black box and uh, you sort of know what goes in, but you sure don't know what's going on inside. Um, and how do you make that more transparent? And so I think that there is now consensus that um, algorithms should be transparent. I think that there's still disagreement on how transparent and how that information should be provided to the user. Um, that's still an ongoing debate. Because again, there's this balance. You need to still optimize the benefit, but you wanna minimize the risk. And so it's, it's, it's a balancing act. Because if you're fully transparent, um, they may, not, may, may or may not listen. I always say, if you ever install software at any point in your life, there's literally, what, three or four pages of text Fully transparent, right? right? Like, <laughs> I like, agree. Does anyone care? Like, no, right? Right. It's only right. after the fact that, like, I didn't realize I just signed my life away. What was that? Was line number ten? Um, so that's a full transparent, but that's not what we're trying to get to, right? And so I think there's this balance. We have to figure this out. It's not about being fully transparent. It's about providing the information that we need at the time that it's needed. That's really the underlying issue. And does this, uh, you mentioned earlier, we haven't had a chance to dive into it, the work that you are doing with pediatric robotics to, does the, how does the trust play into the pediatric robotics scenario? Yeah. So, um, pediatric robotics, it relies on a, a bonding. Um, so having an established relationship, which basically means you have this aspect of trust. And it's important because we're working with kids where we're doing something that might not be very comfortable because we're doing physical therapy, we're doing exercise. And so it's, it could get uncomfortable. We may want them to do it for longer than they want to. And so the child has to trust that this robot has their best interest at heart and is quote unquote their friend. Um, so it's really, really, really important. And in fact, we have shied away from introducing the mistakes um, even though we're like, we're like, oh, let's see what happens, um, only because we're talking about this vulnerable population. And so you make mistakes. And if you have this bonding of trust, you might actually, I mean, it's physical therapy. You might fundamentally right. change the way they think about what's right or what's wrong. And so we've shied away from that because we intentionally want this bonding. We intentionally want this trust to have an optimal outcome. And so we can't play around um, with at least with children with special needs. Now with adults, we, we're doing like I talked about the human and the and the um, robot. For adults, we can do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for kids, we're very very conscious um, of this population. And so when we're doing that, we actually are going out to hopefully improve outcomes. That's our ultimate goal. And to improve outcomes, you have to have bonding. You have to have this relationship building. You have to have this quote unquote friendship, which of course equals this aspects of trust. Uh, and uh, the, is pediatric robotics, uh, to what degree is this a thing? I guess, to what degree are we there? Are there systems that are, um, you know, commercial or production systems out, uh, that are doing this or is this more, uh, in the research domain? I would say this is more in, so it's a combination. It's a combination of in the research but in the clinical research domain. Um, and so for 
um, places that have that do clinical research, like say hospitals, um, they are bringing in these platforms to look at outcomes. But it's not something where, say, a local clinic that is just providing services, not doing research, is going to bring into their home. Um, so it's in that in-between translational stage okay. um, of proving, and mainly it's because it's, well, the hardware itself is, is still difficult to use, but it's also proving out these outcomes and proving out the interventions and, and basically saying, you know, for this target population, this is the intervention that works. Um, and so it's, it's more becomes a prescription. It's at that stage trying to figure that out. And what's the what's the research frontier in that domain? What are the main problems you're trying to solve at this point? Um, so the main problems is long-term engagement and adaptation. Um, so if again, we like our longest phase are eight weeks, which is not long-term. Uh, but imagine you have this robot in the home with this child for you know years. I would even be. <laughs> A year. I'd be happy with even a year um, <laughs> at this point. Um, so how do you ensure, one, that the system can adapt to the needs of the child? Because the child is is going to grow. They're going to improve on some measures of these outcomes. Um, also, the relationship as well. Um, how does the robot identify the progression of the child, even in terms of the emotional state. They become more confident because they are getting better and having more outcomes. Does the robot have to change its behavior because of that? Um, and then and the personalization, which is I bring in the same robot into a home. I bring it into home one. I bring it home to two. I bring it into home three. And each child is different. How do you deal with that? the nuances of the child, uh, which also leads to this long-term adaptation um, because you have to be able to adapt in that moment as your calibration routine. And what are some of the research results that you've seen? And, and what, um, I guess I'm curious, like uh, for examples of kinds of things that you'd publish in this area. Yeah, so our outcome, so believe it or not, most of the stuff we now publish is in the clinical literature. Ah, okay. uh, so we're at the outcome state. And so Got it. we've shown improvements in things like um, range of motion um, and um, movement time, so how fast you move. So we've shown outcomes with children. Our primary target demographic has been children with cerebral palsy. Um, so we have shown improved outcomes. Um, on the, I say, I would say more of the technical techie side, um, we published like the stuff that we published, like now we're done. Like we're like, we're done with that. The long time mm -hmm. adaptation is really linked to the kids. It has, to, it's directly linked to the kids. Um, it's about collecting the data and things like that. Um, so the, the, I would say the technology infrastructure was things like how do you create an expert system based on, um, a knowledge base of, um, Therapists interacting with kids. So that's how we started our initial training as we looked at therapist-child interaction and looked at how do they interact with the child? What kind of um, information did they provide in terms of both verbal as well as gestural feedback and took that and started with an initial um, system that we can then have the robot extract. Um, looking at correlating um, facial expressions to an emotional state. You know, what does that look like? How does that information get fed to the robot so that the robot can then provide the right emotions, whether it's happy or frustrated um, and things like that. So that was all of the work that then tied into more of these 
pilot slash, um, I won't even call them clinical, but pilot studies uh, with mm -hmm. clinical collaborators. Okay. And so are these robots um, that you're using in this scenario, are these uh, you know humanoid robots or are they arms or something different? Yeah, so they're humanoid robots. Um, and I mean, I roughly say that as humanoid. We don't use the um, lower, like we don't do... They're probably right on a now. base or something like that. They, so they have legs, but in, our, in all of our experiments, it's about the arm movement and we just okay. squat. So in theory, the robot doesn't have to have legs. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Uh, so, but it does have to have arms because we have to do the gesturing. So for example, when a child... Um, needs more um, guidance on a proper form, the robot has to use the arms to ex basically explain what the child should be doing. So we have to have the upper arms uh, to show that movement so the child can mimic. Uh, but that's really the only requirement. Of course, the head, because we need to express emotions somehow. So, you know, a head turn and things like that. Um, so yeah, humanoid, they're not that... So we use... Um, the now and the Darwin. So in terms of um, height wise, that's like 18 to the now is a little bit taller, um, two ish feet. Um, so they're small robots. So they're not human size. Okay. And so these are their, their role is primarily as uh, exemplars for the children to follow, as opposed to, you know, what I uh, recall from physical therapy being physically manipulated to the point Correct. of pain. Correct. Correct. Um, so yeah. So what we do is non-contact rehab. So okay. contact-based rehabilitation would be I grab your arm and right. I move it. So we do non-contact, um, and it's mainly well. There's a couple of reasons. Um, one is because we want kids to improve based on their own, based on their own kind of intrinsic motivation, pushing themselves. Uh, it's just like with, with, if you think about sports, like the only way you get better at sports is practice, 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 and you get better. Um, and yeah, you can strap on, say an exoskeleton to a baseball player and they will perform very well. But as soon as you remove the exoskeleton may or may not perform as well. Um, and so our, our focus is on non-contact. It takes longer time and longer term to get the improvements but then they are their own and they're retained. Got it. Super interesting. You also mentioned early on that um, you're, uh, well, one of the terms that you, you mentioned in passing was embodied AI. And I've had some, a few conversations with folks about kind of the role, the relationship between AI and embodiment. And I'm curious, you know, with all the work that you're doing in this area, what, um, you know, your perspective is, uh, and the kind of the, you know, maybe the background is, um, uh, one of the comments that was made, uh, was that, you know, really we'll never get to kind of true AI without embodiment because it ha is so, uh, inherent to, you know, what intelligence means for us as humans. And I'm, I'm curious if, if that's your perspective as well or, or oh, kind interesting. Of, that must've been a roboticist that said that. It was a roboticist, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just saying, yeah, that sounds like something we would talk to about our, in our closed room. Um, so I, I, so I'm not going to talk about true intelligence. Um, 
<laughs> that's like that's going down a rabbit hole. Um, but the kind of the embodied AI versus AI, um, there is a large overlap. So that that's one thing is a fact. Now, maybe not say 15 years ago, maybe it was a little bit more removed, but now um, there's a large overlap. Um, and there are some things that are unique about um, being embodied in the physical world. But I think, and I'm going to put on my, um, my other hat, I think when you think about AI in general, and if it's, an, if, if it's a true agent, like an agent that is exploring a virtual world, I think you have some of the same characteristics of an embodied AI agent, but not all of them. Right. So if you, for example, decide we'll, we'll use a, um, a chat bot, a chat bot, but put the chat bot in a virtual reality environment that has to interact with people. Right. And so therefore you might chat with someone, but then they look really weird or they might turn their backs on you. And so you then have to, you know, so then you have to learn how to interact. And so you're using physical motions if you do the virtual reality environment correctly. You know, you're realizing that, you know, if I say something and they bring me a cup, I have to do something with the cup. And so maybe I shouldn't say that I'm thirsty if I'm really not. Um, mm. So I think you can learn a lot in the virtual world that's similar to being embodied. Um, but then there's the uniqueness of having a physical agent in uh, our real world because then the like they say the world kicks you in the face right <laughs> so <laughs> you're like i have the perfect intelligent uh algorithm and it's perfect in the virtual world and you come into the real world and you realize that um you know the building that you had the beautiful beautiful map of um is actually not correct because a human created that map and of course they might have taken shortcuts um and so now you're in the physical world and you realize and therefore you then have to think about alternatives because your map is 100% guaranteed not to be correct. And so then the way you think about intelligence and adaptation becomes more about problem solving um, to get to a solution. So it's a different way of thinking about intelligence uh, versus just taking all the data and coming up with a conclusion. But there's a large, large overlap between the two. Um, and I hate to say that, you know, before, literally 15 years ago, I'd be like, oh, no, no. Robotics is special, right? Now, <laughs> I think it's like, no, there's, there's so much overlap now because the computing has become so powerful in terms of uh, the computational aspects and, and the brain that we can now take these AI algorithms and put them on a robotic platform. And because we can do that, we can now take advantage of some of these more powerful AI algorithms um, and then incorporate these differences of being in the real world Super interesting. So what's what's next for you, given all the, the things that you uh, have talked about and, and shared with us? Uh, what is the kind of future directions for you and your work? Um, so one is, of course, the, the pediatrics. And we're moving into the um, smaller space. We're now looking at infants, okay. uh, which is actually unique because they don't actually respond in the same way as kids. You know, they're, they're nonverbal for the most part, except that they do have emotions. Um, so we're working, we're pushing more into that space, um, younger and younger. And then on the trust aspects, um, it's this, one, more studies about looking at the parameters of trust. Um, 
Is trust tied to things like education? Is it tied to economics? Is it tied to gender? Are there certain things that we can start modeling about trust? Like, oh, this person here, if I get your demographics, I can maybe more identify that you're more susceptible or not. Um, Kind of looking at that as ways of then being able to mitigate. Like if I have someone, I'm like, oh, guess what? All engineers will never trust, then it doesn't make sense for me to provide any type of intervention for trust. But if I'm like, oh, this type of demographic, like maybe teenagers of age between 16 and 20, they will always trust, you know, if I can identify that, then my intervention methods might be slightly different. Hmm. Uh, So pushing Mm -hmm. that a lot more, pushing it in uh, the healthcare domain, but also in this autonomous, and I I don't want to say autonomous vehicle, but these autonomous uh, robots that are on the road, that are on the road before we even realize, um, I feel that we need to start looking at this aspect of trust. Um, and only I say that mainly because if anything really bad happens, it would totally destroy the community. And right. so I think we need to get in front of it before it, it before it gets to that point. Right, right. Well, Ayana, thank you so much for taking the time out to, uh, to chat with me. Uh, great conversation, as you predicted. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. And uh, I really enjoyed learning about what you're up to. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. This was a beautiful conversation. I enjoyed it. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Remember, we want to hear your thoughts on personal AI. If you were too excited about the interview to hit pause before, now's your chance to head on over to twimmelaicom slash my AI to talk back to us. For more information on Ayana Howard or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 110. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.